Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. In this episode, I'm joined by our Chief Investment Officer, Bill Dinning, for his second appearance on the podcast. We return to some of the macro themes we started last year. We discuss who is going to pay for the mountains of debt accrued by governments around the world. We talk about the increased retail participation in stock markets and, of course, the rise of Bitcoin. Finally, we discuss the future of work and what it may look like when we all creep back to the office. Um, Now, we've touched on a lot of these topics throughout the series. It's really great to reflect on them with Bill. Um, I started by asking him how unprecedented the current levels of government debt are on either side of the Atlantic. This is the Why Invest podcast. Well, they're not unprecedented, uh, but they are at wartime levels. So if we either look at the sort of aggregate levels of sort of debt to GDP, or if we look at the budget deficit uh, relative to GDP um, on both sides of the Atlantic, i.e. in the US and the UK, we're at we're at levels last seen in the 1940s. So, for example, I think UK debt to GDP peaked in about 1946 or 47. And in the United States, the budget deficit as a percent of GDP peaked in 1943. And although the US and the UK have done very similar policies in terms of particularly reacting to the pandemic. The United States, I think, is about to go uh, almost nuclear in its response to the pandemic with the Biden administration spending plans. So if we think about the, I think think the United States could potentially get to, you know, genuine sort of wartime levels of debt and deficits. So for example, in at the end of the 2020, the US budget deficit was 15.8% of GDP. The Biden administration uh, is about to spend as much as $1.9 trillion. That's 9% of GDP with no offsetting tax increases. And they're going to start spending that money in March. They're going to give people checks or transfers to their bank accounts that will turn up in March. So we're talking spending at least hundreds of billions in the next few months. Uh, So I think the budget deficit could easily get to at least 20% of GDP. It's interesting. So can you draw a distinction between between good debt and bad debt? You know, good debt being maybe infrastructure, spending plans, bad debt being paying people's wages. So I'm not sure about good and bad, but I think, I, I think, if we think of it, rather than thinking about all these things sort of slightly ethereally, if we think about what, again, going back to the United States, if we think about what the Biden administration is saying it wants to do, there are two different things that they're doing. The first is this 1.9 trillion is really relief spending. And in fact, I would argue that really everything that's happened since uh, last March, when they started reacting to the pandemic, is really relief. It's disaster relief. It's no different from if you uh, have a town or a city that's uh, hit by an earthquake or a flood, you immediately respond by uh, sending resources, uh, sending money to alleviate uh, that that disaster. And I think that's been, to use your word, uh, that's been good public policy, you know, to spend 
to spend taxpayers' money on keeping people going when through no fault of their own they're out of a job or they've had to shutter their business, I think, is, is, is good public policy. So this is still, I think, in the in the relief camp. The second thing, though, that the Biden administration is going to do later this year is it's going to have a spending program that is more aimed at uh, the sorts of things you're talking about. It's aimed, it, they, They're probably going to spend about $2 trillion on various forms of infrastructure spending. A lot of it will have a sort of sustainable or green angle. And um, I think you could certainly make the case that the United States probably could do with some of that. If any of us can ever remember getting off an aeroplane at, say, at JFK Airport in New York and you drive into Manhattan, you, you're not necessarily dealing with uh, an infrastructure that looks like it's about to enter the financial capital of the world. And so I think, you know, even anecdotally, we could admit that infrastructure spending is probably needed and the green element to it will have some positives, I think. But they're also going to spend probably another one and a half to two trillion on other things. So I think I think there's certainly a case for saying that, that moving away from sort of relief to things like spending on infrastructure, it, it does have the potential to be helpful to uh, the longer term uh, growth uh, pattern. Is this going to see the, a resurgence of the sort of so-called Tea Party, the sort of fiscal conservative uh, part of the, 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 the um, Republican uh, Well, fiscal conservatism in the United States is, again, a very political thing. So, of course, the Republicans are going to play the fiscal conservative card. You know, we don't believe in deficits. But um, uh, the <laughs> we had a Republican president until January the 20th this year. The, uh, the Republicans were in, uh, had a majority in the Senate until early January this year. And uh, the budget deficit at the end of 2020 was 15.8% of GDP. Now, again, that was because they passed measures that were attempting to provide relief to the citizens of the United States because of, an, uh, of a very unusual equivalent of a natural disaster. So, again, I'm not criticizing it as public policy, but nobody last year in the Republican Party was talking about budget deficits. So, um, I, I think we've got to be a bit careful about that. They, what, what the one of the issues is that. As you say, the the Republicans uh, from the sort of nineties onward were having to deal with this so-called Tea Party of people uh, in the Republican Party who were were very against deficit spending, etc. Well, we've got a slightly different issue in Congress now because there's something called the Herbal Tea Party, and the Herbal Tea Party are. Uh, the progressive wing of the Democrat Party. By progressive, in our parlance, we would say left-wing part of the Democrat Party. And they want to continue with the spending largesse that we've already seen as relief. They want to continue that because they just think that people should get free stuff. And they want to fund some of it through increased taxation. So I think I think over the next couple of years and arguably the next four years, the 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 battle really will be within the Democrat Party is can the Biden administration with its very slim majority in the House and a tied situation in the Senate keep the keep their working majority? Can they keep their own party united? And and I think it's very interesting that to me at least that the Biden administration has begun 
with arguably a, a, a much more progressive tilt in terms of its policy aims than a lot of people possibly might have thought. Uh, so you're hearing phrases like go big, i.e. that they need to, they have an opportunity here to spend a lot of money and they're going for it. And if there's going to be a reaction from uh, fiscal conservatives, they may not all be in the Republican Party. And I think that we'll start to see that, I think, when there's more visible signs that the real economy is is coming back, hopefully on the basis of uh, the rolling out of, uh, of vaccinations, which is going relatively, it, it's not going as well in the United States as it is here, but it, it, it it's happening. Mm-hmm. And just returning to your thoughts on the impact, who's going to pay for this debt? What a terribly old-fashioned question, Doug. I, I'm, I'm, you're not really. Ke- you're not keeping up with. You're not keeping up with the zeitgeist, are you? Um, Who cares? <laughs> well, there's an element of that because the the market. It, let's let's ask the question slightly differently. Who's funding it? Well, at the moment, well, the combination. Okay, no, no. Who's who's the marginal who, buyer of treasuries? The central bank, probably. So and what? How sustains so it, well. If you talk to central bankers who, you know, I, I, you know, my my boss for for a while was was Kate Barker, who was on the MPC of the Bank of England for I think nine years, including in the period two thousand and eight nine, and she never really talked about it. But she, if you ask her when you started doing quantitative easing and slashed interest rates to effectively zero in two thousand and eight. Would you have imagined that um, we would still be doing that over 12 years later? And unambiguously, the answer would be no. So what has been allowed to happen is that with with the slight exception of a, of a period around 2018-19 when the Federal Reserve tried to, to raise interest rates, um, you've had pretty much effectively zero rates. You've had uh, significant quantitative easing, i.e. the purchasing of assets, particularly bonds, uh, in the marketplace. Uh, and that policy has, has gone in waves, but uh, it, it, it went. It, the wave is at the largest size ever from last March on. And so the Bank of England is doing the same here. Mm-hmm. So the Bank of England is basically working hand in hand with the UK Treasury. So when the debt management office of the UK Treasury issues gilts, uh, the Bank of England uh, is is buying, not necessarily, they don't buy directly from the Bank of England yet, but they do buy gilts in the marketplace to assist with the, with the absorption of that supply. And in the United States, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury are doing something very similar. And in fact, the appointment of Janet Yellen, uh, who was chair of the Federal uh, Open Market Committee, i.e. the Federal Reserve's policymaking board for, for, for four years, her appointment as uh, as head of the as treasury secretary is just uh, symbolic of how closely central banks and 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 governments are working together and again you could argue that's good public policy in the sort of extraordinary situation we found ourselves in in the last 12 months but whether it's good public policy to be carrying on doing this for what's nearly 13 years is uh, is more debatable i think 
But that's how they're doing have, it for have now. Seen, mm. And have we seen it before? Have we seen you know um, central banks expand their balance sheets as aggressively for such a long time? The short answer to that is no. The Bank of England has data on their website for the size of the Bank of England's balance sheet relative to the UK economy going back to 1697. Uh, the Bank of England was formed in 1694. The previous peaks in terms of the balance sheet of GDP were around 20% which it was for quite a bit of the 18th century. The Bank of England was was a private bank, but set up with the idea that it would help fund the government. And funding the government back in the late 17th and 18th century basically tended to mean funding wars. Uh, There are very few years in the 1700s when uh, the, the, the British military weren't engaged somewhere. So in the, in the 18th century, the bank's balance sheet got to 20% GDP quite for quite often. And it got to about 18% of GDP in, uh, in the period around and just after the Second World War. As ever with these sorts of statistics, there, is, there are sort of slightly different ways you can calculate it. But the bank's balance sheet as a percent of GDP today is at least double the level it was at in 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 and around World War Two, and uh, again double it where where it was in the 18th century. So we we've not seen anything to this scale, no. And so well, it leads us on to the next question, which is, you know, how do we escape from this? How do we escape from such an enormous central bank balance sheet? Is this going to be inflated away? Well, <clears throat> I certainly think that that's that's one option, and. If you look at the history of the United Kingdom in that period after the war, for example, that certainly was the way that you know they, they sort of got out of it last time. So one way to one way to reduce the the debt burden, which is slightly different from your question about the balance sheet, but let's let's come to that, is to keep interest rates very low and importantly keep interest rates much lower than the rate of inflation and if you can do that then the value of that debt and the and the and the way you service that debt through coupon payments etc becomes easier to do and that's what they did in the united kingdom so in the, after the war um, the problem with that is it produces large losses for the holders of bonds so, for example, uh, one of the ways that the United Kingdom had funded itself was was war loans, which they started issuing, I think, in, for World War One, but uh, and again for World War Two. And the, there is these war loans are sort of long term or perpetual bonds, so you've got a long price series on them. And between 1946 and 1962, you had a capital loss of 46 percent. In 16 years, if you owned uh, if you owned a, a war loan, so one of the problems with inflating it away is that that will mean that the central bank is incurring some losses potentially. But generally, I, th- I think policymakers today are clearly attempting, uh, still after nearly 13 years, to generate some inflation. And and if they can do that and keep interest rates low at the same time, then that that does produce a better situation for those in debt, not just governments, but also companies and individuals. We talked last time you were on about this disconnection between um, inflation, real inflation, CPI, as measured by CPI versus asset inflation. Now, are 
have there been times in history when you've seen this disconnection between Main Street and Wall Street, between the financial system and the real economy? That's a very good question. And the answer, I think the answer to that is not to this extent. Now, there are lots of potential reasons for that, but one way to look at it is to see how big financial markets are relative to the real economy. So so most of us operate, if you don't work in financial services or if you're not a big wealthy owner of, uh, of a lot of uh, assets invested in the stock market, you operate in the real economy where you probably derive a wage or you derive some profitability or dividends from a business that you own <clears throat> and uh, uh, you then go about your, your life. Uh, current environment, though, is one that is massively, as you say, favoured those who can invest in financial markets, both the stock market and the bond market, both have been very profitable places to be investing in for the last 40 years. But if we think about it from the point of view of, of just the stock market, yeah, you, you've been much better off being able to participate in the financial economy rather than, than the real economy. And one way of looking at that is to see, for example, the size of the stock market relative to the size of the economy. So in the United States, for example, at the end of 2020, the the stock market, by the way I calculate it, was uh, was over 80% bigger than the United States economy. And certainly in the last 50 years, you've never seen that level of disconnect. At the time of the dot-com bubble, the, the sort of first internet rage that produced that bubble in, in that peaked in 2000, at that layer, the, the stock market then was only 40% bigger than the economy. And everybody now recognizes that was a bubble. Well, we're now 80% bigger than the economy. Now, there are lots of potential reasons why that is happening. Uh, one is that the United States stock market, just like the United Kingdom stock market, is not a very good representative of the local economy. So in the UK, over 60% of, uh, of corporate earnings come from overseas. In the United States, it's probably about a third of earnings coming from overseas. But the, uh, the stock market isn't representative of, of, the, of the economy. Uh, so that's one reason. But the, uh, the other reason is clearly, I think, from the extraordinarily low interest rates, the support implied here by, by the central bank for, for maintaining asset prices has also, I think, contributed. And the extent of that disconnect is, is certainly not something that we've, we've ever seen before. And I, I sort of agree with you that, that, that I think that's a sort of... Um, you know that's one way of thinking about the sort of Wall Street versus Main Street question, and I think it's a very, very legitimate one, and I think it's true on both sides of the Atlantic. Mm. And so, how how did policymakers then respond? So, is there a response um, to, to try and close that gap? Well, I think the best way of doing it would be to engender a period of very strong economic growth, because that would mean that uh, the labor market would be strong, so the unemployment rate would go down, people in work would probably start to get paid more for the work they do. Now, we, we obviously, that brings some risks of inflation, but then a little bit of inflation wouldn't be too bad at the moment, given the debt picture. So, that would be the best thing. And you might well find that you get that if, in fact, the vaccination rollout means that people could go off and do things and spend money on all the things that we haven't been able to do for most of the last year, 
that could help spur uh, a, a very strong period of growth, particularly given uh, the government spending that's still being done and the fact that they've got no intention of raising interest rates to choke off that growth. So uh, we haven't seen really strong nominal GDP growth, i.e. The, the, the economy growing you know, sort of high single digits, for example, sort of, I don't know, call it sort of 8% or something. You have probably haven't seen that certainly you, you probably since the 1980s maybe the odd year since then so it would be great if we could engender that 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 would be the best thing to do and that would bring things down like that stock market uh to gdp ratio down uh and i you know that that's what they're trying to do i mean the united states for example the federal reserve has said that rather than targeting a 2% inflation rate in any given year, they changed that last year to say that they want to target an average inflation rate over a five-year period of 2%. So given that the inflation rate is is under 2%, uh, it's about 1.4% at the moment, the Federal Reserve is telling you that they don't mind if the inflation rate runs at 25 or 3 or even higher potentially, if it's consistent with that inflation rate being uh, uh, an average of two percent over five years, so so they they're, they're telling us what they're what they're trying to do. Uh, they just have struggled to do it, and that's because there are still lots of disinflationary forces around as well. And I suppose it's a related question in terms of market valuations, but you know we've started to see um, retail participation in the stock, stock market and high-profile uh, example of GameStop earlier this year. Um, but also these platforms are pumping shares in, in Tesla and, you know, non-stock non, um, uh, market uh, assets, for example, uh, Bitcoin. Now, is, um, in your view, is, is this different? Are we seeing something different to what we've seen, um, you know, back in the 80s with privatization and retail participation rate, um, or indeed the 20s when famously the shoeshine boy was giving tip, top, uh, stock tips? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are, you're right. I mean, there, are, there have been other periods when you have seen extensive retail participation and, yeah, the apocryphal thing about the shoeshine boys, etc. This tends to happen more in the States than it, than it does here. But, yeah, you're right. Uh, there, there have been manias and there have been manias in other countries as well. You know, in the, in the 80s, you, you had a big retail manias in markets like Taiwan and Korea. So is this one uh, different? It's slightly different in the sense that there, uh, that, that social media enables people to communicate directly with other people interested in the topics that under discussion, which means that there can be, it can be a little how how they participate in the mania can be a little bit targeted. Hence, this idea of, of 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 figuring out companies that professional investors had got large uh, short positions in, and quite cleverly deciding that if they were to buy the shares in those companies on mass, i.e., that lots of people did it, they would they would eventually force the people who were short to uh, to buy mm-hmm. uh, to buy shares because one of the problems of with having a short position in a company is that your gain is only ever from wherever the price is today to zero. That's your maximum gain. Your loss uh, is is theoretically infinite. And uh, so, <clears throat> you know, risk management of people who run short positions would, would force them at some point to realize their losses. 
so the the actual manner in which it's being done with the help of social media is 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 a little bit different but i'm not sure that in an environment where people are sitting at home and where people in the united states have been sent money directly by the government you know a little bit of speculative activity with that is is probably something that isn't completely daft whether it's significant enough to sort of change anything i i i'm a bit skeptical about that but congress is is conducting hearings about all this so it's it's possible that there might be some regulatory uh, backlash although i think that's more likely to be relative to the hedge fund industry uh, rather than it is to individual investors i don't don't think the united states government is going to say that people can't open an account that allows them to Mm. buy and sell shares well, question is the duty of the um, regulator to protect the retail investor, um, or is it to protect uh, or to uphold a sort of free and fair market? Well, my own bias would be the latter. I, th- I think the regulatory environment should be to encourage uh, uh, markets that are tr- that are transparent and 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 as you say, fair. In other words, that people don't think that they're rigged in some way, which is why things like insider trading have, have, be, have been clamped down on very hard in the last few decades. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that I think is the correct focus. I don't, think, I don't think we should get to the point where we're sort of protecting retail investors per se, because then, you, you, you know, if, if you can't, you, you've got to allow people to make losses, uh, I'm afraid um, that, that that must go with the territory. Going back to a conversation that we had last year, Bill, on tuition fees and undergraduates, um, what will um, allow undergraduates to um, escape from their enormous debt piles as they come out of university? Well, that's a uh, that's a very uh, good question, and I uh, I think some of it, or you know, if if they can in fact generate some inflation and generate a strong economy, that massively increases the probability that more and more uh, university graduates will be able to get jobs. Many of them will get good jobs, and many of them will be getting paid more in the environment of strong economy. So, frankly, the best thing they could do is to is to make that happen, and we get back to. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, sort of the 80s or, or the, the 50s and 60s when you had uh, pretty robust economies. Um, that, so that would, be, that, that would be the best thing. But you're right. The reality of it is that the introduction of tuition fees um, has sort of happened uh, just before we've had a, a pretty stagnant uh period of economic activity followed by the great financial crisis of 08 and then followed by uh, a sluggish recovery from that followed by a pandemic so you know for the last 20 years it's been a much tougher environment on top of that the labor market just thinking parochially about the uk is totally different to what it was say 40 years ago when when I uh, was uh, was leaving university, um, the labour market in uh, in the UK, particularly in and around London, is truly international, and Brexit won't stop that. Uh, so the competition uh, for for jobs is, is is greater than it was, and 
the other thing that's massively different that, that a lot of people seem to have forgotten is that uh, although nothing like as many people went to university 40 years ago as do now, those of us who did go 40 years ago, at least in my case, were the uh, recipients of a full grant. If I, I got paid somewhere around £3,000 a year to go to university by, uh, by the state, which was a, a great help to me and to, and to my parents. Um, now, we've had a lot of inflation in the last 40 years, and you can calculate these things all sorts of different ways. But if we use the retail price index um, and we start with uh, that three grand grant from 40 years ago, today that would be the equivalent of giving somebody £11,000 per annum to go to university. Now, my daughter's in her last year at university, and she's paying 9250 for the privilege of, of going. So that swing between not, plus or, 11... Or not going. Or not, or going. not going. Well, yeah, she's actually one of the ones who can be there because of the nature of the mm. course she's doing. But uh, she's obviously having a very different experience to the normal student life, exactly. But even if we step aside, even setting aside that, you know, the, the difference between being uh, given 11,000 and paying 9,000 is significant. And I think that... Although, in my experience, a lot of students uh, and people who have been students who've taken on tuition debt, some of them are very much against it. Others are sort of ambivalent about it. I think the people who are the, the most uh, annoyed about it are, are actually the parents, people like me. I think uh, we, you know, if you compare my experience to that of my children, that's not a level playing field. And whether it's good public policy to start giving students £11,000 a year to go to university when so many more of them do, uh, I'm not sure. But there might be I, – I do think that the, the pandemic is probably going to have to lead to another – possibly a bit of a rethink about tuition fees. I know it's a political minefield, but it has been a political minefield for, for 20 years, you know, uh, you know, arguably, Nick Clegg hadn't reneged on his election commitment to rethink tuition fees, the reneging allowing him to join a coalition with David Cameron's Conservatives in 2010. Arguably, you know, that single decision led to the uh, collapse in the Liberal Democrat uh, vote and representation at the 2015 election that created a Conservative majority which in turn meant that the Conservative Party had to hold a referendum on Brexit. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a rather convoluted way of saying that actually I think that tuition fees caused Brexit. For these graduates coming out of university at the moment with this large amount of debt, do you think you, the pandemic and this shift to working from home has made the job market more competitive, more competitive because um, you've introduced, um, you've sort of, re-accelerated the ability to work from anywhere. And if you can work from anywhere, you can hire someone in a developing country who can do the job for even cheaper than your homegrown graduates. That is a very interesting question. And I I think I haven't seen any data on that. Uh, there might be some out there. So forgive me if, if, I, if I've missed something, but I, I think that's a very interesting question. And to give you an anecdote, uh, with with a couple of colleagues yesterday, we did a, an interview with a, a journalist uh, who works for a, a publication that everybody thinks is based in the city, and she was in Greece. And uh, so you're right. The manner in which we now work, at least in service industries, uh, appears to have, have changed uh, probably. I, I don't think 
completely. I, I don't think there's going to uh, personally. I don't think there's going to be many people who will be wanting to uh, work from home, and I certainly all the time. And I certainly don't think many companies will want some of their employees, except in exceptional circumstances, constantly working from home. One of the real challenges, and that, that I have seen data on this, one of the real challenges as we as we get on top of the the pandemic and the opportunity to go back to uh, working in an office, for example, uh, presents itself again. One of the real challenges for companies is going to be to make sure that they keep the playing field for their employees level. So go- going to the office is a great leveler. Whether you're the chairman, the CEO, or uh, a, a receptionist, or you, you're, or, or, or whoever you are in the company, you all have a shared experience, and you all have something in common, which is that you work in uh, the same environment, in the same rooms, uh, as all of your colleagues. Uh, and the way in which you dress to go to an office, I know there's a lot more sort of. Uh, uh, casual and everything, but there's still a bit of a uniform to it. And that's a great thing for cohesion, and it's a great thing for giving people a more living play- level playing field. If you start to allow some people to work from home most or all the time, and some people to go to the office most or all the time, or you say that even if people, everybody has to work three days a week in the office and two days a week from home, but you don't decide which, you don't make sure that those three days are, are together and you've never got your uh, people together at any one time, you're going to create problems. And there's lots of, there are some data on this already that, for example, in, in companies that have already been doing some of that, one of the things they've found is that the people going to the office are much more likely to, to be promoted, for example. And um, the people working from home are eventually going to realize that in not being in the office, they're missing. So when they click, you know, stop video or drop call, uh, they they will go back to doing whatever they're doing at home. Their colleagues who are in the office are all going to then probably have a much more, if, if it's like most meetings, as you and I would probably both concur, <laughs> will then have a much more productive discussion about the topic after the formal meeting's over. And so I don't I don't think we we're going to see the total demise of the office. I think the office has a very important role to play uh, in, in for the vast majority of, of companies. And I I think we I don't I, I'm not I don't think we're seeing the demise of the office. But but in terms of what it means for how you do your work, I I, I agree it, it does have challenges. It, it does mm. change things. But I I, I don't think we're going to be you know. It, it, it's not going to be the same as as call centers opening up in mm-hmm. uh, you know hundreds hundreds or thousands mm-hmm. of miles away uh, because I do think you're going to have to have people working together for at least some part of uh, the average working week. Mm-hmm. I totally agree, but I mean, how do you know? Let's say we have another six months, twelve months of this, and twelve months, maybe another eighteen months of of sort of staggered. How do you reclaim that osmosis, that space in between meetings, those those chats by the elevator or water cooler? How can you reclaim those? And I think maybe, Bill, to target this at, at sort of the younger, our younger colleagues and you know, the analysts and the associates who are coming up through, how do you get, how do you um, 
do that over Zoom. And, and I think that's exactly right. And I think we have, if you employ somebody, you want to get, you want to give them the best opportunity to, to, to succeed at the job you've hired them to do. And if they're, particularly if they're younger, you want to give them the opportunity to grow in that role and to grow in your firm. You know, the best firms hire good people and give them reasons to stay for uh, ideally you know, potentially their whole career but certainly for a big chunk of it you know you don't it doesn't do anybody good to have in most jobs it doesn't do anybody good to have high turnover uh, and i think the that role of the sort of mentoring role the ability to sort of informally check on how people are doing and also make it clear that uh you know young people and new people can you know be encouraged to ask questions and to engage them uh, is, is very, very important. And then, as you say, it's that's much harder to do when they're at home. And I've certainly, you know, uh, we've actually hired quite a lot of people in the last 11 months. In fact, I'm, I, we've just hired somebody this week who's starting next week. So, you know, in my direct team. So we're, we're, there's lots there's lots of hiring going on, but you're right. It, it's harder to to integrate people properly. And therefore, again, it comes back to, it's very much in the interests of both individuals and uh, their, 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 their corporate uh, employer to encourage people to, to come back together. But I don't think that's going to be much of a challenge. I mean, you know, humans, you know, are, are social animals. And I, you know, I, I for one, uh, miss uh, being uh, in the in in the office, uh, partly because obviously this is very extraordinarily unusual for all of us. But certainly, I've never been a fan of working from home. I think even the people who enjoy working from home will will realise the the benefit of at least being in the office with their colleagues uh, a couple of days a week, at least. That's at least that's my view. Very interesting, Bill Denning. Well, thank you for joining me. Thanks very much, Doug. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, and our guest this week, Bill Dinning. If you want any more information about any of the topics discussed in this podcast, then head to our website at waverton.co.uk. If you've enjoyed this podcast or indeed any other podcasts in this series, then why not subscribe and tell your friends? The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.